1: Hi, I'm Keegan and I'm Madigan and you're listening to your, your angry, angry neighborhood, neighborhood feminist.
2: feminist. This is the podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Well, hello, 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 hello,
1: <laughs> welcome to another episode. Uh, <laughs> it's so weird whenever we're recording remotely because we don't do the intro like yeah. live and in person. That it really it's just is hard like- to get started. It is. It's just like, I I have no idea. I feel so like uncomfortable and awkward. And also it's 9 p.m. And I just got a little bit of cold brew because I'm like, I need something to push me through. Girl,
2: you're going to be up all night. I
1: know. And I have to get up early tomorrow morning. This was probably. You're not going to sleep. You know what? It's
2: we're we're here now. It's too late. I'll sleep on the plane. Um. Oh, I physically cannot do that. Right before both of our flights for or before our flight for the wedding, I should say there and back, Max and I got like two and a half to three hours of sleep the night before both times. And I was like, I'm going to sleep on the plane. I will be tired enough doesn't matter i could be the most tired person in the world i cannot sleep on a plane yeah
1: i mean in fairness one i can't really sleep on the plane um especially if i'm on the plane by myself i feel like the number of times i've seen anthony fall asleep in public is really the best testament to male privilege i've ever seen in my life (laughs) i'm like i i cannot fall asleep especially if i'm alone because i'm always like
2: what if someone, takes, alert, my stuff, or someone takes my stuff or someone takes my head on a swivel?
1: Yeah, you know. Um, but honestly, my plane doesn't even leave until the afternoon, but I wanted to get up early and get all the stuff I need to get done, done. Um, yeah. So I'm like, Ooh. sounds
2: fun. Well, then let's just have a good time. We are doing another Feminist Favorites this week, and we looked it up, and Keegan is going to be going first. So yes. tell me a story.
1: Okay. So this is somebody who. I only knew about because of a movie that came out semi recently. Um, other than that, hadn't really heard of this person. And in all of my time, you know, doing this podcast and googling, trying to find uh, feminist favorites to talk about, right? I don't think that this person came up very often, if at all, really on lists that I had seen. So, hmm. I'm going to be talking today about journalist Marie Colvin. So Marie Catherine Colvin was born in Astoria, Queens, New York, and grew up on Long Island. She grew up in a pretty progressive household. Her mother, Rose Marie, was a high school guidance counselor, and her father, William Colvin, served in the Marines during World War II before becoming an English teacher for New York City public schools. And I do feel like both of these things, I mean, her father being a Marine turned English teacher and what Marie would go on to do. I feel like it's of course she's his daughter, you know? Okay. (laughs) She gained a reputation for being energetic and boisterous. So to get a glimpse of what her personality was like at the age of 13, she wrote in her diary and she went on to be a journalist, which is also funny to me because of how she wrote in her diary Uh because it just says to church period war mini period. The mother and the father no like. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like that's such a, you know, 13-year-old kind of you know, rebellion. The mother thing. and the
2: father no like. No, know like-y, they no you know. like.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Marie had a love for travel and adventure from a young age, choosing to spend her junior year of high school studying abroad in Brazil before graduating in 1974 and heading off to attend Yale University, where she majored in anthropology. Smarty pants. Yes, smarty. Though it was not her major, she had a real love of English and writing. And after taking a course with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist John Hershey, Uh, She decided to start writing for the Yale Daily News. She said to her best friend, quote, that's what I wanted to do. I want to tell the really big stories by telling them through the stories of the individuals, the victims of war. And so that's what she set out to do, even though she was an anthropology major and she would actually graduate with a degree in anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, She was like from that moment on. I wanna be a journalist, that's what I want to do.
2: She was an anthropologist of the story. She knew how right. to dig down deep into the story. That's right. <laughs> was was Indiana Jones an anthropologist? He was a paleontologist. No, a paleontologist is is dinosaurs, like Ross. Yes, but I'm pretty sure. No, you're right. But then wasn't there something in Friends where there was reference to Indiana Jones being a paleontologist?
1: I don't know, but I know he definitely wasn't, so maybe Ross like was it, clinging to hope.
2: Maybe, but yeah, archaeology seems like the right bet. I think I've only seen the first Indiana Jones movie once, and I can really only remember the scenes that I've seen a million times in clips from other things. So Somebody
1: is yelling at their like car stereo <laughs> or into their headphones oh, right now. If y'all they knew- know.
2: If y'all knew the amount of, like, important movies I haven't seen, your heads would be spinning. Like, I've (laughs) missed so many important ones. There's a list. We're going through them. That's why I think Max showed me Indiana Jones because he was mad at me about it. hot take.
1: Look, I enjoy the Indiana Jones movies, but it's... Look, if you you go the rest of your life without seeing them, I I really don't feel like you're missing anything.
2: (laughs) It just isn't, like, my thing. Like, it's fine and I'll watch them, but, like, I don't really feel like I need to go out of my way to, like be invested in it you know anyways we're not talking about indiana jones we're talking about Maurice. so we're not
1: but you know after we're done recording i'm gonna google because he was either an archaeologist or anthropologist or both of those things but regardless i feel like that's kind of fitting um for her as well so yes Growing up, her father was active in social issues, so it's no surprise that Marie followed in his footsteps, working for a labor union in New York City immediately upon graduating Yale in 1978. A year later, she got her first journalism job with the United Press International and worked her way up through the ranks, eventually becoming the Paris Bureau Manager in 1984 before moving on to London's The Sunday Times. So yes, this woman is dedicated. I really do feel like she sees a goal and she's like, that's that's it, that's it. That's kind of how it was. She took that one course um, and she was like, I'm gonna be a journalist. She graduated Yale and was like, I'm going to start maybe kind of close to the bottom at this place and work my way up to the point where I am the bureau manager in Paris, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that what she experienced is the dream where you stumble upon something that you've discovered that you not only have this immense passion for it, but you're also very talented and you're good at it. And I think that there is something about finding your passion in that way that keeps your motivation going. And keeps your eye on that goal, when I think that if you're not as passionate about it, you don't have that same amount of, like, drive to achieve that goal. It just seems like, you know, she was on a path to doing one thing, this passion kind of tripped her up, and she couldn't divert from that.
1: Yeah, yeah. In 1986, she became the newspaper's Middle East correspondent and began to make a name for herself on a national scale when she interviewed Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi after Operation El Dorado Canyon. So Operation El Dorado Canyon, um, during that, the United States bombed the country And during this interview, Gaddafi claimed that he had to help rescue his wife and children as the house collapsed around them and told Marie that reconciliation with then-president Ronald Reagan was an impossibility, calling the man a dog. So, huge interview. Like, this really is like, it's a, like, kind of, like, make your career kind of interview. Right. Um, And years later, I don't think I took a lot of notes on this, but years and years later, um, as her reputation would grow, he actually interviewed with her again, like specifically with her. So she had a real way of making people feel um, like they could talk to her. And she's just, she's just, she was trusting good at her job, you know? Specializing in the Middle East, she covered conflict zones around the globe, including East Timor, Zimbabwe, Libya, uh, Chechnya, Kosovo, Iraq, and Sri Lanka. So her brand of journalism was really unique because, especially at that time, I feel like nowadays you see a lot more compassionate journalism. um, Uh But at the time, it was like, you know, just the facts. And there's a lot of benefit in that, right? Like to not be biased. But... You can be compassionate um, and empathetic without being like wholly biased. Yeah. And it was controversial, though, you know, at the time because it was it had a lot of heart to it. She tended to go into these dangerous zones and she would go further. She would stay longer than other journalists in her field. And she identified really, really strongly with innocent civilians, especially with women and children. In 1999, in East Timor, the compound she was reporting from was besieged by Indonesian-backed forces who were threatening to kill any of the Tumorese people or foreigners who were left at that site. So a lot of the other journalists, they got calls from their editors, and their editors were like, you need to get out of there right now. You know, go to Australia. But Marie refused to leave the 1,500 women and children behind at this place because she's like... If I stay, I can put pressure on the government. I can put pressure on the government. I can continue to report from here. I can show people what's going on, so right. I'm not going anywhere. When Marie called her editor to say she was staying behind with two Dutch journalists, both women, he asked where the men were, and she <laughs> said, "They've gone. I guess they don't make men like they used to." Ha <laughs> ha) And this Suck is a it. wonderful line. I mean, it's a great line, but it is somewhat unfair because at least two of the male journalists had gone into the hills with um, some of the local guerrilla um, soldiers there. So they.
2: they not, not entirely factual, but a great not line. Not all men. Not
1: all <laughs> men left. Okay. But they didn't stay in the camp, right? Right. Marie's refusal to leave. And her insistence that she keep reporting what was happening t- uh, to the world, both in writing and on TV, but a huge pressure on the UN and other world governments, and is credited as largely the reason for the Indonesian forces calling off the militia after four days, effectively saving the lives of women and children at the camp. Wow. So when they talk about this, you will find articles that say, you know, Marie Colvin saved 1,500 women and children. And wow. this is what they mean because they did not, uh, these Indonesian forces did not want to kill Stop. American citizens or um, journalists. Right? right. And especially right. since they know that they knew that there was a spotlight on them um, that kind of helped them.
2: It ruined in their way. plan.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. She would later say, quote, I embarrassed the decision makers, and that felt good because it saved lives. It's rare to see such a direct result in journalism. For her coverage of conflicts in Kosovo and Chechnya, she would go on to win the International Women's Media Foundation Award for Courage in Journalism and wrote and produced documentaries for the BBC. In 2001, Marie was reporting on the Sri Lankan Civil War when she was struck by a blast from a Sri Lanka Army RPG. Mm. So despite sustaining serious injuries, including one that would result in the loss of her eye, and that's how I knew her. I saw a picture of her, and I remembered that Rosamund Pike was in a movie called A Private War, where she she had a patch over her eye, Okay, and I was like oh, I think that she was playing her in that movie. And it turns out that that was the case. So that became kind of her trademark after that happened because the damage to her eye, her eye. <laughs> yeah, was so severe that she ended up losing her eye. But oh despite that and having several other very serious injuries. Um she managed to write a three thousand word word article on time to meet the deadline. Mm-mm. Uh just really it's like girl you can't you can't rest. Um, but she <laughs> took her responsibility as a journalist very, very seriously and Definitely. she had seen firsthand um what happened whenever she was able to do her job effectively. Exactly.
2: And And that's the thing is, like, even part of her... Her injury is even part of that story. I can see why she'd be like, well, no, I'll rest when this is done. Let me finish this first. Like, I understand that sentiment.
1: Right, because, I mean... Lives are quite literally on the line, you know, like getting these stories out is that important to her. And so um, she not only wrote the article, but she also walked over 30 miles through the jungle uh, with her guides to evade government troops. She reported on the humanitarian disaster in the northern region of the country. And that included a government blockade on food, medical supplies, prevention of foreign journalist access to the area for six years to cover the war. So she wow. really exposed a lot of stuff that it's like, it's not just like these rebels fighting each other. It's also the government punishing civilians, right? right. Um, so it it was a pretty big deal. And again, she did all of this while being gravely injured, right? Yeah. When she finally made it out, she was hospitalized and in addition to the physical injuries she suffered, she also experienced extreme PTSD from this event. And oh, I'm, sure I'm sure all of the events leading up to this point, right? It's like she is spending a lot of time in war zones. Yeah, and <laughs> you know? that's a
2: lot of time with your mentality, your emotional state being at such a heightened high level of awareness. I feel like she would have like heart problems. You know what I mean? Like your heart's just always racing. I can imagine that your mental state would deteriorate spending so many years dedicated to something that's so scary.
1: Yeah, it's so stressful as well. You know, like it's an incredibly stressful job, especially the pressure that she would put on herself you know again, like I said, this was a very high stakes job for her, and she took it very seriously so between the things that she suffered and then all of that additional stress, um, she started having panic attacks, she was having nightmares, she had one recurring nightmare um, where she got shot over and over again oh. uh, and so she did turn to alcohol to kind of like quiet a lot of that stuff down and something that was interesting whenever I was doing the prep for this episode or something that really kind of got hammered home to me over and over again. There was a great article that I read that was written by a friend of hers. And so many of these articles talked about the fact that this stuff is not unusual with journalists like this, especially journalists who have to go to um, war-torn countries. Um, They see a lot of death. They see a lot of Horrible things. They see a lot of humanitarian crises. Yeah. uh, In addition to constantly having their own lives threatened, you know. Right. So, yeah. In February of 2012, Marie was smuggled on the back of a motocross motorcycle across the border of Baba Amar, a rebel-held enclave in Syria. Determined to cover the Syrian civil war, despite the Syrian government's attempt to prevent foreign journalists from entering the country. Mm. While there, she made a broadcast on the evening of February 21st, appearing on the BBC, Channel 4, CNN and ITN via satellite phone. During the broadcast, she described the merciless shelling and sniper attacks against civilian buildings and people on the streets of Baba Amar by Syrian forces. Speaking to Anderson Cooper, she described the bombardment as the worst conflict she had ever experienced, mm. shedding a lot of light, you know, much needed light on the plight of Syrian people. I mean, we remember that time period. Yeah. Um, and... I feel like it was one of those things that people were like, why aren't we doing anything <laughs> to help yeah, Syria? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a lot of it was her reporting. And for her to come out at this point, people knew who she was. And so for her to come out and say in no uncertain terms, this is the worst thing I have ever seen. That meant a um, lot. Is huge, right? Yeah. So that was the last broadcast she would ever make. She died the next day on February 22nd, alongside photojournalist Remy Olchlik. An autopsy conducted um, in Damascus by the Syrian government concluded that Marie Colvin was killed by an, quote, improvised explosive device filled with nails. Oh, yeah. The Syrian government claims the explosive device was planted by terrorists um while fleeing the while fleeing an unofficial media building um, which was being shelled by the Syrian army. Mm-hmm. But this account has been questioned and in fact uh, rejected by photographer Paul Conroy who was with Colvin and Ochlick and survived the attack. So he was wow. there and he's like that's not what happened. He recalled that they were packing their gear when Syrian art when Syrian artillery fire hit the media center. So he's like, it wasn't terrorists. Don't listen to the Syrian government. Wow. Mm hmm. And then other journalists and photographers that were in the area came forward to say that this was not the work of terrorists, that the building had been targeted by the Syrian army and that they had identified them by the satellite phone signal. <gasps> so the thing that she used to like, you know, call yeah. in the CNN and to yeah. work, basically, they had like identified that that's where they were based so on So it signal. was
2: a targeted attack? They wanted her?
1: Yes, it was basically <gasps> like an assassination uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. On the evening of her death, the people of Baba Amar mourned in the streets for Marie and Ochlik. Her funeral took place in Oyster Bay, New York, on March 12, 2012, in a service attended by 300 mourners, inclo- including those who had followed her dispatches, friends, and family.
2: Wow. She was
1: cremated, and half of her ashes were scattered along Long Island and then the other half at the ri- at the River Thames near her home. In July 2016, her sister, Kat Colvin, filed a civil action against the government of the Syrian Arab Republic for extrajudicial killing, claiming she had obtained proof that the Syrian government had directly ordered Colvin's targeted assassination. Mm. In April 2018, the accusations were revealed on court papers filed by her family and in January 2019, an American court ruled that the Syrian government was liable for Colvin's death and ordered that they pay $300 million in wow. punitive damages. I mean, yes. it doesn't
2: mean they get it necessarily, but I mean, you're yeah, asking I a mean, government, not a personal person, you know? Yeah,
1: but I think just having the acknowledgement exactly.
2: that
1: we believe you, you know, that like this wasn't, you don't just get to say whatever, especially for someone like her who's so valued the truth. You know, she yes. was a journalist. The judgment stated that Colvin was specifically targeted because of her profession for the purpose of silencing those reporting on the growing opposition movement in the country. The murder of journalists acting in their professional capacity could have a chilling effect on reporting such events worldwide. Mm-hmm. A targeted murder of an American citizen whose courageous work was not only important, but vital to our understanding of war zones and of wars generally is outrageous and therefore a punitive damage. And therefore, a punitive damages award that multiplies the impact on the responsible state is warranted. And so what they're saying here is that like we we not only went ahead and applied these damages, but we also made it so punitive that 300 million dollars, you know, um, because you can't just go around murdering journalists with impunity. Like there's a reason why we protect The press and why we protect journalists. Right. You can't just stop people from saying things that are true because you don't like it. Exactly. That's not how this works. And especially not that you can do it anywhere, but you can't start killing journalists from other countries.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And expect it to just not be a problem.
1: Yeah. And expect that to just not be an issue. A film based on Colvin's life, A Private War, starring Rosamund Pike as Colvin was released based on the 2012 article Marie Colvin's Private War that was in Vanity Fair. During her life, Colvin noted the importance of shining a light on humanity in extremes pushed to the endurable and... And Empathy in Reporting, stating, quote, my job is to bear witness. I have never been interested in knowing what make of plane had just bombed a village or whether the artillery that fired at it was 120 millimeter or 155 millimeter. Mm -hmm.
2: And I think that
1: that just so perfectly captures who she was. She wasn't reporting from um, a place of just telling you the facts. She wanted you to understand the human cost of these wars, right? And she had a huge impact on the way that that kind of journalism was done. Yeah. Uh, and so I know that that's kind of like a shorter one, but it, I found it tremendously interesting. And I so also think, interesting. you know, and I also just think that like having an understanding of what these journalists go through and, you know, the cost of it all is, yeah. I found that to be really profound for me because it's not something that I necessarily spend a whole lot of time thinking about. No, we,
2: we take in all of these articles and read their stories and things like that, but we don't always think about what these journalists have gone through to be able to report the things that they do. So it's nice to hear the story on the other side of it, especially from somebody who truly had the humanity behind her uh, and, and the recognition that she could bring humanity out in other people through that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and one of the articles I read that was by a friend of hers who's also a journalist, she was compelled to write this article kind of like talking about her life. And at first I thought it was going to be kind of like snarky because I think the title of the article was something like the the myth of Marie Colvin or something like that. Right, and then I yeah. read it and it it certainly wasn't that like she was all those things that we, you know, think of her as. But she wrote the article because the movie had just come out and there were so many people, young women especially, who watched the movie, learned about Marie Colvin's life, and then said, you know, I want to do what she did. We're very, like, inspired by it and fascinated with it. And, you know, she wrote this article to kind of say that, while that's a very noble thing, please understand the true cost of of what, what goes she did, into yeah. living a life like this, like the alcoholism, the PTSD, the you know damage to her body, and then yeah. ultimately her death. Yeah. So.
2: Oh well, thank you so much for telling me all about Marie. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. You can shop
0: from anywhere, doing pretty much anything.
2: This week, I wanted to talk about somebody that may not be seen or regarded as a typical feminist fave necessarily because this person didn't really talk much about being a feminist in their life, but I think that this person was such a trailblazer, an example for what a different type of woman could be during her era, and I am going to be talking today about Miss Annie Oakley.
1: Oh, Annie Oakley. Okay, awesome. You know, I've found since doing this series that we say that quite a bit where we're like, they maybe didn't think of themselves as feminists, but they reshaped the way the world thought about women and what women could do and they broke glass ceilings and Annie Oakley definitely falls under that category. I'm excited.
2: Totally, totally. And I've... I've always kind of been a fan from afar but never really knew much about her life and her story was very fascinating to me so I am very excited to share it with you. So first and foremost her real last name is not Oakley that was a stage name Uh, and her real last name is under much debate because people in her family spelled it differently Um, so like the census records are kind of all over the place but most records say Mosey, like M O S E Y, but some of her family went Moses. Um, there's Mozzie, Mose, like there's so many different spellings, but I'm gonna go yeah. with Mosey yeah. <laughs> for the if sake of this. Ever-
1: tried to do your ancestry on like ancestry.com it is it gets so confusing because that's what happens like all of my family's census records are all over the place because everybody spelled things differently and then Mm -hmm. things shifted over time and like
2: that's so common yeah something that was interesting about the Haggertys that i found out was that like because we were pretty much illiterate like Potato farmers. So we could say our name, but we wouldn't spell it. So, like, however they spelled it on Ellis Island was how our name was spelled. So, like, I might actually be related to people where it's like spelled differently and so on and so forth. So, like Haggerty with T's or something, you know, there's a there's a R D Y. There's, I mean, there's a bunch of different spellings that's it's nuts, but I think mine is probably the most common. But, um, anyways, there's also some different records regarding the date of her birth, but it's been pretty much understood that her birthday was August 13th. 1860. So last Saturday would have been her 162nd birthday. Wow. Happy birthday, Annie. Happy birthday, Annie. And she was born Phoebe Ann Mosey, but always went by Annie. She never went by her first name. And she came into the world into a log cabin in Indiana to Quaker parents of English descent named Susan and Jacob. Annie was sixth of nine children in the family at the time. And her father was quite old by the time she was born. He was 61 years old when Annie came into the world. And Whoa, wow. Yeah. That's an old dad. I mean, he'd already had, you know, six parents or six kids before, or whatever, or yeah. He became an invalid toward the end of his life when Annie was still very, very young and passed away when Annie was six years old after a bout of pneumonia, which sounds very scary. So at this point, her mom, Susan, had nine mouths to feed, and at a time when women didn't have the same opportunities as men to make money, she needed a husband to be able to take care of her kids. So she ran out and married a guy named Daniel Brumbaugh, and together they had Susan's 10th child, Emily Unfortunately, and this is so Dickensian, her husband, number two, died shortly after his daughter was born. And Susan was now left with 10 mouths to feed. No, no husband no. and no income. <laughs> it's
1: it's too many. That's too many. It's too many. I was it's too just many. Um, on a family like vacation. And like I, I really enjoy children. But like when you're around uh, a brood. <laughs> it's It can get like, it's, it's very intense. It's, a it's lot overwhelming. Of energy,
2: you know, yeah. It's very overwhelming. And it's also just like there's so much need involved. You know, kids need so many physical things that unfortunately her mom just couldn't give to her kids. So when Annie was about eight years old, I believe, her mother sent her and her sister uh, Sarah Ellen to the Dark County Infirmary. And there, Annie was cared for by the superintendent and his wife, the Eddingtons, who were very, very kind to her. Uh, She had never attended formal school before because of her poverty and things like that. And the Eddingtons started kind of teaching her how to read. Mrs. Eddington taught her how to sew. And she liked making little, like, baby outfits for, like, the young ones that lived in the infirmary. And it seemed like she was starting to kind of have a more stable life, even though it might not have been ideal or what, like, most kids would have have. And this all really changed within the first year at the infirmary when a family rented her out to be able to help care for a newborn that need that needed them in the family. Yeah, so she was promised. What a, what a time. You know? I know, I know. Well, it, yeah, she was like an 8 or 9-year-old girl, I think, at this point. And she was offered $0.50 cents a week, which would be about $11.31 today, and some formal education in return for taking care of this newborn child. But unfortunately, Annie would never receive any payment or education in repayment for her work. Instead, she was essentially enslaved by this family. Uh, She would do all of their cooking, cleaning, housework. They lived on a farm, so she did all the farming work. She cooked all the meals for the children, the parents. She's nine years old, and she was made to get up very early in the morning to do all of these tasks, and if she didn't do them correctly or in a timely enough manner, she was punished physically very, very badly. She referred to this family as the wolves in her memoir and never revealed their actual identity, although she did discuss their cruelness. Once, she was left outside in the freezing cold all night without shoes as a punishment for falling asleep while doing her chores. She was also only left with the remaining scraps of the meal she prepared for the wolves, and she was always hungry. That's terrible.
1: I don't understand how people can be that cruel, especially to children. I know. Just...
2: But they were seen they were seen as like because these children were unwanted, like they were seen as disposable. You know what I mean? It's just it's very sad. I actually I read a book a while ago called, I believe it was The Orphan Train, which was about um like Irish immigrant children being sent to different states in the U.S. and essentially being put into, like, enslavement as well by different families and being treated terribly. And it really is, uh, it was far too common, it seems, at this time. I feel like I've heard a lot of stories of kids going into kind of, like, work camps or, like, working, what's the word I'm looking for, like, uh, houses and things like that to be sent out to make money for their family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, I'm
1: always shocked by, or not even shocked, I guess, but just appalled by people's lack of humanity. I just can't imagine going to bed every night knowing that I'm mistreating somebody to that degree every day.
2: Well, you've got to go, I think that the person who's doling out the abuse has to have justified it in their head enough. Like I think to them, she really, she was less human in a way. She was unwanted, so she wasn't a real child. You know, I can see, I can't see it. But I think just from the stories that I've heard, it seems like these people really justify what they're doing in order to sleep at night. And that's sick and fucked up. Yeah, you'd have to. You'd have to. 100%. Annie went through this treatment for about two years. And then she was finally able to run away to the train station and make her way back to her mother. When she returned home, she was surprised to see that her mother had married again, this time to a guy named Joseph Shaw, and the family was living on his small farm. At this point, it was just her and her younger siblings on the farm. All of her older siblings had married and left, and she was very lonely. It seems out of her own volition, she decided to move back into the infirmary with the Eddingtons, and this time they became even closer to Annie, with Annie even calling Mrs. Eddington auntie. Yeah, that seems like the most stable family life she's had. Exactly. Sadly, you know. And I don't know how she went about like if she could just decide she wanted to go back. There's really no details about like how she ended up going back and forth or if her mom said, you know, you have to. I don't really know what the circumstances was, but it was definitely the best place for her Uh, once the wolves actually tried to get Annie back once they realized that she was in the infirmary but the Eddingtons put their foot down and were like no you're not taking her you can't have her essentially and really protected her it was finally also during this time that she received some formal education and she really started rebuilding a relationship with her mother and her siblings as well they would come to the infirmary for holidays and she felt like things were really moving in the right direction after a few years at the Eddingtons, she came back to the Shaw farm, and her family was really struggling financially. They hadn't paid the mortgage and owed $200, which is about $5,810 today. So they were fucked. In to help. Debt. They were in serious debt, and Annie took it upon herself to really help the family out. To take down the cost of food, she began hunting and trapping game to feed her family, and then she began selling extra game to buyers for some money. So it would be not just for food, but also, like, the animal skins and things like that. I want to give a slight trigger warning just for anybody that doesn't love, like, especially vegans, people who don't want to hear about, like... Any sort of animal cruelty, I don't go into any uh, descriptions, obviously, but like it even is kind of hard for me to hear some of like the hunting stuff, like it just kind of makes my stomach queasy, but it was a different time and it was out of survival, so this is what she did. Um, She also started finding buyers that wanted to buy more and more of her stuff, so she was actually making really good money and became the breadwinner for her family And she knew that she had the skill because her dad taught her to trap before he died, but she didn't handle a gun until after his death when she removed a rifle from the fireplace and started target practice with her brother. And allegedly the story goes that she was able to hit a rabbit perfectly in the head at her first shot when she was eight years old. That feels like a tall tale to me. I don't know. That, that feels like a
1: uh, George Washington and the cherry tree kind of vibes. A hundred percent. But for love the it.
2: sake of this story, I mean, either way, it sounds like she was an incredibly skilled shooter. Something that was int- like even at a very young age and something that was weird about her. Well, one, she could do it with both hands. And two, she wouldn't close one eye to aim. She left both of her eyes open when she was looking at her target. So she kind of had her own way of doing things. So, with this success, she far surpassed the $200 that she needed to pay the mortgage, and the teenage Annie paid for her family to build a new, nicer home on the farm. When she was 14 years old, her sister Lydia invited her to live with her and her husband, Joseph Stein, in Cincinnati. There, she had already met a buyer from before who had bought some of her stuff, so she met up with him, and this guy told her about this shooting match that was coming up against this expert marksman that does these tours around the country, and he was like, you should sign up for this event, and she was like, okay. The match would be held right after her 15th birthday, and the winner would receive either $50 or $100. The records vary. The expert marksman was Irish immigrant Frank Butler, a professional sharpshooter. He was about 25 or 26 and had come to the States when he was 13 from Ireland. When he met Annie, he had already been married and had two children, then divorced, and he was traveling the country doing tricks. There was no way that Frank believed that this 15-year-old girl standing at 5 feet tall would be any competition to him. But she won. Mm-hmm. She beat him. <laughs> they, I think it was like they had to shoot like 15 pigeons out of the air. And Frank shot 14. And Annie didn't miss one or something like that. And this really impressed Frank. And he wasn't just impressed with her skills. But really, really took a liking to her and her family. So invited them all to come see his stage show. And then after that, they pretty much just started dating right away. Because less than a year later, Oof. they were married. And the age difference is not great. I don't love it. But, like, nothing is ever mentioned about it in any of the accounts. Yeah, I don't think it was terribly uncommon for 15-year-olds to get
1: married. I mean, they were pretty much considered adults, I think. It's not my favorite, but I think it did
2: happen a lot. I believe my um, dad's mom married my grandpa when she was 16 she got pregnant. So, like, those kinds of things happened and whatever. But My
1: great-grandma got married at 15. Yeah, I mean, mean, you know,
2: different times, different times. Uh, So, for the first few years of marriage, Frank continued to travel around the country with his partner putting on shows. However, after an unfortunate circumstance, his partner was no longer able to perform with him, and he needed somebody else to come up on stage with him. So, he asked Annie to be his partner. At first, she would just hold things for Frank to shoot, but once she started her portion of the act, the crowd began to go absolutely wild for her skills, and Frank knew that his wife had to be a permanent part of the show. This was when she decided to take the last name Oakley, which was allegedly after the Cincinnati suburb that they were living in at the time. The couple began touring the Midwest, and Annie made all of their costumes— From those sewing skills she learned when she was younger. Yeah, she is a woman of many talents. She is. And she was really actually praised for that because especially being a female sharpshooter, she like wore very like conservative, but like very feminine and beautiful outfits. But they were still very athletic. Uh, Like she would wear shorter skirts, but have leggings underneath. So she was still covered up, but she still had this very like feminine air about her and she is kind of like you know if you look at today's cowgirl she was kind of our first image of what that would look like you know so when you picture a cowgirl in your head she's got like you know the long kind of fringy skirts and tops and cowboy hats she's very covered up um but she they really loved that she was still like so feminine you know what i mean even though she did such a masculine sport right well yeah people are you
1: know, we contain multitudes and people are multifaceted, right? And it's like, yeah, she can like fashion and sewing and making her own things and, you know, having this kind of like domestic feminine hobby or skill rather because it's more than a hobby, it's a skill. And also right. <laughs> be incredible at hunting and sharpshooting
2: and, you know, you can't exactly. put Annie in a box. No, you can't. You simply cannot... So about 1884, they joined up with a circus and toured with them for 42 weeks. And after that, they teamed up with Buffalo Bills Wild West Show, which was like unbelievably successful. Like you wanted to be a part of Buffalo Bills. I mean, everyone has heard of that guy, right? Uh, (laughs) There, Annie met fellow female marksman Lillian Smith, who was a rifle sharpshooter. So they had different... uh, Niches, different expertise, but Lillian hated Annie on site. Ugh, a good old cat fight. They were complete. Yeah, they were completely different. So like I said, Annie was known for her like conservative attire. She was very professional and very like mild mannered and kind where Lillian would wear these like super flashy costumes. She had a foul mouth and she was known for being a flirt. So Annie probably really rubbed Lillian the wrong way and Annie just kind of wanted nothing to do with her. But Lillian once allegedly said aloud that Annie Oakley is done for. So the two didn't really get along very well. And after a while, Annie was really tired of this rivalry that she wanted no part of. So she left Buffalo Bill's show for two years. During Annie's absence, though, Lillian wasn't able to draw the same crowd and she was eventually let go from the show. And once Lillian was gone, Annie decided to come back. Her touring of Buffalo Bill is what ended up making her a celebrity and, like, a household name. Eventually, she was making more money than anyone else in the show, besides, of course, Buffalo Bill, and the whole cast, besides her, were men. She performed in front of numerous crowned heads of state, such as Queen Victoria, and once she performed for German Kaiser Wilhelm III, and at his request, shot the ash off the end of his cigarette hanging from his mouth. Oh, Oh, no. <laughs> While Annie was touring in Minnesota, she met Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull was touring in the northern states and Canada in something that was called the Sitting Bull Connection. He was such a fan of Annie's work that he paid a photographer to take a picture of them, apparently something that was not very common as it was very expensive at the time. He believed that Annie had been blessed with a supernatural ability to be able to shoot so well and with both hands— He symbolically adopted her and named her Little Sure Shot, a name she would continue to use throughout her career. I guess maybe
1: I don't. It's very sweet, but like they keep talking about her being able to shoot with both hands. Like maybe I just don't understand shooting (laughs) because I'm
2: like, isn't that how you're supposed to shoot? I think it's like you would have like a dominant trigger finger and a dominant hand that would like hold it maybe like. Uh You know, kind of like a righty and a lefty scissors, but with a gun. Okay. I don't Uh, know. Well, maybe I need to take a closer look at her pictures. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I read it multiple times, but maybe... I'm sure that she still, like, preferred a certain hand. But he was like, this is absolute sorcery that you're able to shoot this well. Oh,
1: Oh my gosh. I'm so stupid. Okay, I thought... (laughs) I thought they were saying having both hands on the gun. I'm like, yeah, you have both hands on the gun. Oh. They're saying that she used her she She was like ambidextrous.
2: Hands. Yeah. I see.
1: Okay, <laughs> carry on. I was so confused. I was like, who are all these people who
2: are shooting rifles with one hand? I <laughs> like, mean, yeah, I don't know. No. Okay, now that makes more sense. Much more sense. So yeah, it's very sweet. They became like very, very fond of each other. And Sitting Bull actually joined the Buffalo Bill show for a while where he would ride once around the arena and then speak to the audience about the need for peaceful relations between the Native Americans and white people. However, he would also allegedly murmur curses at the audience at times as well when he was riding around, <laughs> which I kind of love.
1: <laughs> I love that. It reminds me of, did you ever see Parks and Rec? Yes, when they have like the Native American tribe and he's just like,
2: (laughs) oh, and they (laughs) don't know what he's saying or whatever. And he's actually uh cursing them. (laughs) Uh (laughs) That's exactly what it was. He's like, you stupid white people. As her popularity rose, she began promoting the idea of women in combat for U.S. armed services. She wrote to President McKinley in 1898 offering the government, quote, 50 lady sharpshooters who would provide their own arms and ammunition should the country go to war with Spain. When we did go to war with Spain, Annie heard nothing. In 1901, she suffered a severe injury involving a train, leaving her with temporary paralysis and a need of numerous spinal surgeries. Oh, my God. Imagine
1: spinal surgery at that time period.
2: I can't, I cannot, and Horrifying. I will not. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, lack of anesthesia. I didn't even think about that. She officially left the Buffalo Bill Show in 1902. Then she shifted careers ever so slightly as she had been approached to act in a play based on her called The Western Girl. Her character, Nancy Barry, used a pistol, rifle, and rope to outsmart a group of male outlaws. She was also cast in one of Thomas Edison's kinetoscope films in 1894 called The Little Sure Shot of the Wild West. Annie also began teaching other women to shoot at the time. She believed that it was crucial for women to have the skill to be able to provide and protect as well as any man could. She allegedly taught roughly 15,000 women to shoot in her lifetime. She also never forgot the poverty that she came from, and with being one of the highest paid sharpshooters in the world, she donated to charities for orphans. Annie and Frank bought a home in Maryland, then North Carolina in the 1910s, and Annie began picking up competitive shooting once again. She continued to set records into her 60s. At the age of 62 in 1922, she hit 100 clay targets from 16 yards. Wow. Right? <laughs> her eyesight never went bad, apparently. That's what I was thinking. I was just like, eyesight. And then also, like, you've had all these, like, old timey spinal
1: surgeries. Like,
2: yeah, you're, I it's was incredible. I feel like I would be shaky. You know, I wouldn't be as, yeah. like, sure. But yeah, she was a badass. Even after Frank and Annie were in a car accident, resulting in her having to wear a leg brace, she continued to perform and break records. Her health began to decline in her late 60s, and she died of pernicious anemia, which is a blood deficiency, in Greenville, Ohio on November 3rd, 1926. Apparently, Frank's grief was so strong that he stopped eating and died 18 days after his wife. Oh, wow. I know. And the doctor reported his cause of death to be senility or senility, however you would say it. Yeah, yeah, senility, yeah. But it's like he died of a broken heart. It's so sad. He was like, I will not eat without her.
1: Well, I mean, they shared so much of their life together, not just time, right? Because they'd been together for a long time, but also... Their all their interests were together. Their business was together. They traveled together. You exactly.
2: Know. They were like best friends. And I found this really interesting. I had to reread this sentence quite a few times. But Annie was cremated, but her husband Frank was buried, and he was buried with her ashes. And I was like, interesting. Oh, wow. I feel like usually they kind of do the same thing. But I found yeah, that but really interesting. You know, interesting. maybe.
1: That's a good solution if you want to be together but one person has really strong feelings about, you know, about about how they want to be. Right. How they want to be Because I feel like. Laid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, trying to think of the word. <laughs> yeah. um, but I feel like some people have really strong opinions about that, right? And they're like, I absolutely do not want to be buried. I absolutely want to be cremated. And then other people feel the opposite. So if you have differing viewpoints on it, that's a good compromise.
2: <laughs> I know, exactly. And they were still together. And I wanted to talk a little bit about their relationship as well, because I think that that's something that was also very unconventional at the time. They never had kids. They were very, very prominent in the lives of like their nieces and nephews and stuff, but they were like the cool aunt and uncle. They never wanted to have children for themselves and really just focused their lives on their career. And really, well, Frank... did he have kids from a previous relationship? Yes. Yeah, so I don't know what happened to his two kids from the previous relationship. It, they're never mentioned So I would assume that they stayed with the mother after the divorce because before he met Annie, he'd already like kind of lived this whole marriage life. So I don't know if like maybe he just had like less of a relationship with her kid with his kids, but they never like raised children together. They were pretty much like touring. I mean, he was touring. They were both touring their whole life. You know, I don't think that was like. Part of anything that they were thinking about. Um, But their roles were also very switched in the marriage because it was more about Annie's career than it was about Frank's career. Frank really kind of took the back burner and started kind of becoming like her manager, secretary, you know, managing her schedule, cleaning her guns, and making sure like business was running smoothly for her. And that was also something that was really not heard of at the time for a man to kind of like step away from his career to let his wife kind of like like, show off, you know what I mean? And he was okay with her being the breadwinner.
1: It seems like right from the beginning, you know, when she first beat him in that first tournament or whatever, he wasn't intimidated by her um, skill. No.
2: He was impressed by it. Very impressed. And, I mean, Annie was five feet tall her entire life. Like, she is short. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like she's such an unassuming person and I can almost see why like in your first meeting you would almost gain more respect because you don't expect something so powerful to come out of someone so small, you know? Yeah, And she was just this like force to be reckoned with. So... But a
1: lot of husbands, that would be really, like, difficult for them to handle, you know, yeah. their their wife, quote-unquote, outshining them at
2: their thing that they're good at, you know? Totally. And, you know, Annie didn't use his last name professionally or in her life either. She wasn't Annie Butler. She was Annie Oakley. Like, she really made a name for herself. And uh yeah kind of like I said in the beginning as much as she you know was never part of you know the the suffrage movement I mean she lived through so much time she was born before the civil war and died in the jazz age you know what I mean and she was never really a part of a lot of the things that we've discussed on the show, but I think that in her own way, like that wasn't her surroundings. She wasn't like a more wealthy white woman who maybe would have gotten involved in those kinds of causes and things like that. Instead, I think she lived most of her life based on survival and then doing the thing that she was good at, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I didn't know all of that stuff. And I
1: feel like I don't know. I wanted to say when you first said you were doing Annie Oakley that I'd been to like the Annie Oakley Museum, but I don't think so. But I think she was at like a Western museum that I'd been
2: at. But There's a bunch of them. A lot of that. There's a there's one like in North Carolina that's like a historical landmark. She lived actually, you know, you were just in Ohio. She lived in Ohio and Cincinnati for a long time. So I guess there's got to be some, you know, landmarks to her there. I actually got a lot of information from this blog called Dark Journal, and it's all about Dark County, which is where she's from. And they had a lot of really good information on her as well that Wikipedia and some other sources didn't. And yeah, it was really fascinating. A a lot of the things that we know are from this unfinished autobiography that she had written throughout her life. And a friend actually found it after she had passed away and pieced it together for her and, uh, you know, published it to the world posthumously. But uh, yeah, she definitely had a much deeper story than I was aware of. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for doing that.
1: Of course. Okay. Um. So I have a little bit of an announcement that I would like to make to the listeners tonight. Um, I'm a little anxious about it.
2: (laughs) Don't be anxious. Breathe. (laughs) Uh, So
1: I've been doing this show for four and a half years. It's obviously incredibly important to me. Um, I feel like I've grown so much as a human being over the last four and a half years. I feel like this show has allowed me to become a more empathetic person, a more educated and informed person. Uh, And I'm so grateful to this show and to the listeners and to my co-host, Madigan, um, for everything that this show has given me over the last four and a half years, and I have always it's always been extremely important to me that I strive to give you my best every week and that I show up as fully present as I possibly can and provide you all with the highest quality of content that i'm I'm capable of giving and um, lately my life has just been so incredibly busy and I've realized that in order to give the show what it needs while also um, allowing myself uh, space to take care of my own um, health and mental health that I've made the very difficult decision to step back from the show. Um, Madigan has decided to soldier on. (laughs) um, And I have no doubt that under her guidance, the show will get better and better from here. And I want everyone to know that this decision was not made lightly. Uh, I've had many, many wakeful nights, many, many tears spilled um, over this decision. But it's not goodbye. Not yet. Uh, no. I will be doing the show um, for the next month as your co-host. And then hopefully, uh, any anytime Madigan ever needs me, I'm always happy to... Come back on for any reason and and spend time with you all. Uh, yes, and I don't want to get too too mushy and
2: no, we'll and have sad time. Do- we'll have time for that as well. But I just wanted to say, just for the listeners' sake, you know, our friendship is never going away. Our friendship is so strong. I'm not going to get choked up, but you know, we were friends before this. We will be after this. Isn't any sort of like rift or anything like that for Keegan leaving so I just want everybody to have rest assured that like we're fine <laughs> you know nothing bad is going on or anything like that and we love each other endlessly and I I wish Keegan nothing but the best and I want her to be happy just as I know she wants me to be happy and she wants this show to continue to succeed and I know that she's going to be behind me to support me every step of the way and no matter what that looks like so I'm incredibly thankful for you and for, you know, the four and a half years and this one more month that we've had together. We're going to make it an amazing last month filled with things that Keegan really wants to cover and, you know, we're going to be mushy and have fun and we're going to try to keep it light but still love on each other quite a bit. So thank you, Keegan. Oh, honey. Thank you. No, I'm
1: I'm just so... I love you so much and I love this show so much and I love this community so much and um, I don't want anyone thinking uh, that it is, (laughs) that I don't have so much deep love for this show and and deep love and respect for you, Madigan. Um, I
2: know. And I know so, yeah, and I I'm not, I'm I, I think that that's very, very clear. I just wanted to say that because I know it's like if you're not in our lives and you don't know the conversations we have, I don't want someone looking out from the inside, thinking that there's any sort of animosity or anything like that going on. There isn't It's just this is what what's going on with life right now, and it's gonna be a new phase. And we're moving forward. I'm not ready to end it yet, so I'm gonna keep going. And that's just life. That's how things go, and it's it's all good and it's all okay. Um, but we wanted to let you all know, especially because we we want to have this, you know, last month to release, really celebrate, and not just like drop the bomb on you all <laughs> with all of these changes <laughs> and things like that. So, oh man, yeah. how do we and even I'm, wrap I'm this excited. up?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm so I'm so excited to see. Uh, the way that this show is going to grow and evolve and change, I think it's going to be a really beautiful thing. So yeah. I hope the listeners know that we are going to take care of you.
2: Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm looking for a new co-host. You know, I want I want this to still be a two-person thing. Um, of course, it's never going to be the same. Nothing will ever be Madigan and Keegan, but I think that that's important as well. It's, it's good for th- things to be changed enough as well for it to be something new and exciting and i'm looking forward to it it's scary and it's new but i think that everything is gonna be a-okay so i love you Love you too. (laughs) All right. So if there's anything that you would like for us to discuss, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on our Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. If you haven't done so already, please go to your Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It truly means so much to us. Alright, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to raise on. on.